the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I am Seth Liebson, and welcome back. I have uh, been quoting her all week. That is Dr. Eleanor McCants Katz. If uh, she didn't exist, we'd want to have invented her. Doctorate in um, epidemiology and a medical degree in psychiatry. She was the first Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services for the mental health and subst- for mental health and substance use in the Trump administration and uh, was talking to us, talking to the administration and to the rest of the United States early in 2020, as early as April and May in 2020, about what some of the effects on mental health for our young adults and our youth would look like if we continued with the lockdown policies we were commencing. Uh, I believe we are now seeing that social fallout that she and a few others, not many, but a few others predicted. And I wanted to catch up with her again. I've been quoting her all week. Why not just talk to her doctor? Welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for inviting me, Seth. I, I wish it were a happier occasion. I, and I know, I, you know, that's not the business you and I are in, unfortunately, uh, too, too much of the time. I don't have a doctorate, but I've been working in this field, oh, for about 20 years. And as a layperson, I think uh, I can hold my own uh, with anyone when it comes to mental health. That was not an issue people wanted to hear about uh, throughout tw- uh, 2020 and 2021, was it? I mean, you were given the warnings about the mental health effects on our youth as early. I was uh, quoting language of you uh, from you uh, in uh, May of 2020, where you were saying the research literature is clear on the effects of quarantine and stay-at-home practices on mental health and that we were going to see an intensity of mental health problems experienced. We have that now, don't we? We, cer- we certainly do. Um, and and it is, um, it, it's really very sad to watch. Um, we're seeing... Um, significant uh, problems in our children um, we have uh, and during during the time of the uh, restrictions the isolation that was was put on to our children when they couldn't go to school when they couldn't socialize um, over I, I just I thought I'd, I'd give you a statistic just so that people can kind of get a perspective sure. on this sure um, if you look at CDC's data today, because they follow this every day. They don't talk about it very much, but they follow every day um, how many people in this country die of COVID. And they do it by age group. Yep. So it's very easy to calculate. Yep. And so uh, we've all seen the, the articles about over a million deaths at mm-hmm. this point yep. uh, from the beginning of the pandemic. For kids, 1,257 children have died of covid over the past two plus years. Of yeah, pandemic. two and a half years. So what about 400, just about 400 a year, maybe a little under? Yeah. 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 And, uh, and the, well, uh, the, yes, yeah, it's, it's been, yes, just a little over two years. Yeah. So 1257. And if you compare that to overdose death. Right. In one people. Right. Uh, the number is 2100. That's right. Per year. 
per year. So that's, that's a yeah. 66% yeah. increase in overdose deaths compared to COVID deaths. That's right. Now, all of these lives are precious. We don't want to lose any lives to COVID or to overdose deaths. But the point is that we ignored problems of mental health. We know that, that children experienced far greater increases in suicide attempts than we had ever seen before. Mm -hmm. We don't have the data on the number of suicide deaths, but with the increase in attempts, one can speculate that we may see increases in suicide deaths in our young people as well. We already do have some numbers on emergency department visits being up for young adults, particularly women with suicide, uh, suicidal thoughts. Right. I mean, we are we are seeing the beginnings of that data to come in. None of it good. All of it much, much higher than before 20 than than prior to 2020. Correct. Correct. So in 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 the early months of the pandemic, March, April, May, when we had the, the lockdowns, what we what we saw, and CDC again has this data, uh, we saw a big increase in the proportion of individuals seen in EDs that were being seen for suicide attempts. And the reason this is important is because that was a time when nobody wanted to go to an emergency department. Uh, that's because right. Everybody was afraid of COVID. That's right. So if you were if you were going to a, an emergency department, you made a very serious harmful suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this happened to a great extent in our young people. That's a that's a really good point and a really good reminder, uh, doctor. Why was it? Maybe you could give us a little insight from when you were there uh, in the in in the administration, and maybe even having a little bit of a look back test or a look back effect on this. Why was it that there was such um, animus or antagonism towards talking about the mental effects, the mental health effects on our youth that we were going to be creating and causing for a disease we already knew was not really going to touch them like it was going to touch. I don't know, the 75-year-olds, the obese, the comorbid, the people with the comorbidities. We, we kind of already knew that, but when people like you raised your concerns, I, I, I repeated your speech verbatim on my show. YouTube took it down. They said we can only use government sources. I said I think the assistant secretary for mental health at the U.S. Department of HHS is a government source. No response. Why, why the animus toward it? You know, I think I think what happened was that we were seeing the uh, virus spread rapidly uh, in other countries to start with, uh, and the panic that occurred in Wuhan, the panic that occurred in Italy, and when the virus came into the United States, I think I think that the fear of viral contagion and the the, the fear of death just overwhelmed consideration of anything else. And and so people took very restrictive measures. Our public health experts that were relied upon uh, recommended very strict um, approaches that had a lot of negative effects on mental health. Uh, and they, I, I believe they thought that this, these approaches were going to um, going to curtail the viral spread, but it didn't. And when it didn't, I think people became very, very fearful. And any, any consideration of any other illness 
uh, mental illnesses, substance problems, or any physical health problems were completely put to the side. Nobody considered anything. If, if you remember back to 2020 and into 2021, our healthcare system was essentially shut down. That's you, you, yes, you, you, it's a good reminder, right? There was all kinds of screenings that didn't happen. There were all kind of regular appointments that had to be canceled. You're right, I, and that's a good reminder. It was physical yes. health as well as mental that took a hit. It, it was it was both. And if you look at data on uh, on deaths in the United States over the course of those restrictive periods what you see is that there was a sizable increase in deaths from other causes, and that's attributed to diseases that were not caught early enough um, and were not treated effectively because of the shutdown. And, and the, yeah. the concern and, and the regret that, that, that I feel, and it really does make me feel very sad, is that I, I believe it could have been done differently. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, we could have kept our health care system open if we had used the World Health Organization's guidance around social distancing. So I do believe that with a respiratory virus, we needed to take precautions. Um, that those, precautions, those precautions included social distancing, but the World Health Organization said three feet, one right. meter, right. not six feet. Right. And when you say six feet, you know, our our infrastructure, our buildings are what they are. You just can't fit right. many people into those buildings when right. you do that. And we did this to this day. I don't know where people at CDC got the six feet from. Right. I've seen all kinds of speculation, including they said six so that we would do three, you know, that kind of thing, that kind of thinking, that kind of argument. But then again, I've also seen, you know, other officials, and you don't have to comment on this if you don't want to, but I've seen other officials uh, like Anthony Fauci admit that he was deliberately misleading people about about uh, what it would take to get, to obtain herd immunity because he didn't think the American people were ready to hear it. I think I, I, I think there was a distrust, I have to tell you, a distrust of common sense in the American people. And when that distrust manifested, it led to greater and greater government dictate. Um, let me let me take a quick commercial break. If I can keep you for one more segment, Dr. McCants, I, w- I would like to talk to you a little bit about the connection between what you were predicting, what the surveys and, and research is now showing, youth violence and drugs. Can we talk a little bit about that illegal drug use when we come back to? I appreciate it very much. Our guest, Dr. Eleanor McCants-Katz, Secretary Eleanor McCants-Katz. She was the very first Assistant Secretary for Mental Health at the Department of Health and Human Services. If only more people had listened to her, we wouldn't be in the soup we're in. Glad to have her with us now. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I am Seth. Our guest we are privileged to have with us is Dr. Eleanor McCants-Katz. She was, uh, among other things, the very first Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services for Mental Health at uh, HHS. Uh, Dr. McCants-Katz, we are now focusing, uh, our country is, uh, national discussion is now focusing uh, on violence, uh, particularly uh, youth violence or violence with young adults. Um we are noticing that sort of or I'm noticing that discussion taking place in a bit of a silo. It seems to me no one wants to discuss the attendant increase 
of illegal drug use, which we are also seeing steadily increasing, as was predicted, basically as a, in large part as a result from certain policies on, on our border, but also policies having to do with school education and COVID. Um, talk to me about what you're seeing as the fallout when it comes to drug use, disinhibition, violence, suicide, all these other all these areas that attend that problem. Well, uh, let me just let me just um, say that that uh, once I once I left office and came back to my my home state, um, I've gone back to practicing medicine, practicing clinical psychiatry, and um, and in doing that, I work with a lot of of patients who have substance problems. So I have a I have a subspecialty in what's called addiction psychiatry. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I specialize in the care of, uh, and treatment of people who have both mental disorders and substance use disorders. Mm-hmm. So so I can tell you that I've seen many people, and they pretty much uniformly say that during the pandemic, they were isolated, right. um, they were bored, um, they couldn't go out and socialize and do their normal activities, and that caused them to um, increase their drug use, increase their alcohol use. Um, I've had... Well, let me stop you right there. There was one other thing I think you'd agree with me, and we stopped 12-step meetings. We stopped, we stopped congregate settings where people in recovery were doing their best, too, right? We, so even, well, they, right. They, they did try to do online, right. but that doesn't work for everybody, and no. not everybody has access right. to online services. Right, right. So, yes, that, that, and, and that, that support, that kind of mutual support is so important to people that are trying to recover from mm-hmm. these kinds of substance problems. So, so people found it. Um, had more. I've had a number of people tell me it was easier to get in touch with their drug dealer than it was to get in touch with their doctor. Sure. So sure. that me and they'll deliver. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's right. So it was easier for people to get to get drugs and alcohol. People were ordering alcohol in large quantities uh, to their homes, and we are definitely seeing. Um, much greater rates of severe mental illness of people who have what we call co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders, mm-hmm. uh, especially um, problematic uh, is the use of marijuana, yep. which is increasingly being um, legalized in states. Uh, it's been available for so-called medical purposes mm-hmm. for uh, in many states for a number of years, but more and more states are actually legalizing recreational use. Mm -hmm. Marijuana, particularly in young people, adolescents and young adults, um, is is a drug that can um, produce um, psychotic thinking. So people lose touch with reality. They may hallucinate. They may become paranoid. Um, I work in the state hospital system in my state, and I can tell you that um, pretty much all of the patients that we admit uh, and most of these patients are patients who have forensic issues, so criminal issues mm-hmm. and mental illness, mm-hmm. um, are using drugs and alcohol. And marijuana is, in my experience, the most common drug used. You know, uh, when you look potent, at... Go ahead. And it's very potent, and it can, for people with mental illness, uh, it, it really makes it much more difficult to treat them. Yeah, that's the discussion two people don't seem to want to have either, isn't it? I don't know if you saw this, 
But um, in the New York Times story about the Uvalde shooter, I try not to use his name, but in the New York Times story about him, they actually had a sentence in there in the draft. Alex Berenson produced it that uh, showed that he was a regular marijuana user. It never made the actual print edition. It never actually made the official edition. The New York Times took that part out. But for the curious, if you look at a lot of the shootings that have become or a lot of the youth violent outbreaks that have become sadly famous, whether we're talking about Parkland, whether we're talking about what happened here in Tucson just uh, about uh, 10 10 or so years ago, there is again and again, you see that these young kids, regular high potency marijuana users. No one seems to want to talk about that. Why is that so taboo? Because marijuana is big business. Okay. Marijuana is a multi-billion dollar business in this country. Okay. And no one wants to have that. So the, the, the manufacturers, the producers, uh, don't want to have any limits placed on them. And the states see this as a means of increased tax revenues. In my own state, I've said you can't get enough tax dollars That's right. to take care of the people who are going to go on to social welfare because they can't take care of themselves. Right. For the people who are going to have mental illnesses right. that that are difficult to treat and will be disabled and on Medicaid for the yep. rest of their lives, yep. you, you really cannot collect enough tax dollars to make it worthwhile. But they don't see it that way. In some ways, I guess it's going to have to be like the pandemic. Yep. Um, you, you tell you can tell elected officials and and administrators that, that you can expect this to happen, but until it happens. Um, it, it's not going to be uh, acknowledged or recognized. It's, would it's would really, you do this for my audience, which has a, a large contingent of parents to it? It's a largely, it's a very heavily parenting audience or parented audience, uh, Doctor McCants Katz. I only have about a minute and a half, two minutes yeah. left. The difference between, I mean, yes, okay, we don't want to encourage it. Uh, obviously, for any population, recreational use of marijuana or marijuana use generally, but what it does to the teen brain. It is a different thing on the teen brain than, say, so to speak, the 40-year-old brain, so to speak. But talk to us about the teen brain in marijuana for a moment, if you don't mind. Sure. So I think it's important for for parents to understand that their child's brain is still developing until about age 25. Mm -hmm. And the effect of marijuana on... uh, So so we know uh, that the effects of marijuana on even developing fetuses... Mm -hmm. It's quite substantial. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it affects intellect. Uh, it affects uh, 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 the ability of, of, of a person to have uh, normal motor function and um, and their ability to live normal lives in some cases. If you look, the um, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the American Academy of Pediatrics, have recognized the um, the detrimental effects of, of a woman who is pregnant with marijuana use on the developing fetus. And then going forward from that, uh, for a young person who is using very potent marijuana, if you have a family history of mental health issues, if you uh, are vulnerable to mental illness and you use marijuana, it sometimes does what we call unmask mental illness. Uh-huh. And so the person, the, the child may start showing symptoms of paranoia, agitation, um, bizarre thinking, isolation, and this may go on to develop into, into mental disorders that can be lifelong and very difficult to treat. And if you look at data out of Colorado, 
They don't like to talk about this much. But if you look at their data, they were the first state to legalize yep. the number of uh, suicides in young children that include marijuana uh, is, is, is high and it's growing. It exceeds uh, other drugs and alcohol. Uh, it, it's really very worrisome. Well, so, we're going to have so, to do a down payment for a larger conversation on that because I, I, I thank you for it, and there's not enough medical professionals who are willing to make these points, uh, Dr. McCants-Katz. As I said, if you didn't exist, we'd have to invent you. Thank you for spending some of your Friday night with us, and I hope you'll stay close. I'd like to call you back again soon. Happy to do it, and thanks for inviting me. Godspeed and God bless. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, we are talking about the hard stuff here uh, because if we don't, I don't know uh, where you're going to hear it. Uh, one of the things we're working on, you've heard Jim Ryan uh, talking about our campaign on sex trafficking to stop the sex trafficking in Phoenix. We sat down with Jeff May from the Dream Center Foundation to talk about it and uh, want to play that for you right now. It's a delight to have two great guests uh, in the studio with me. You have heard my general manager, Jim Ryan, talking about our struck, uh, excuse me, stop traffic campaign, our stop traffic walk campaign. And we, in fact, are delighted uh, and privileged to have in the studio with us Jeff May, who's the executive director of the Dream City Foundation, which is working with us on this. Um, we'll get to Jim in a moment and the issue of trafficking here in Arizona, sex trafficking. But, Jeff, uh, as I do with every audience, uh, with every first-time guest, tell us a little bit about yourself, a little mini-autobiography, how you came to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, well, thanks, Seth. Thanks so much for having me on the show. And, you know, I, I came to be involved about three years ago heavily. But for quite some time, I've been involved with the Phoenix Dream Center. But about three years ago, I, I learned about the Where Hope Lives program, which is the largest human trafficking rescue and rehabilitation program in North America. We're actually the second largest in the world. And when I found out that this program was located in Phoenix and the amazing success of the work they were doing, I had to get involved. Fantastic. Well, we're delighted you are. And by the way, if people want to learn more about it or help out, we have a big link to it up at 960thepatriot.com. You can't miss it. So I have to sit up a little straight. My boss is sitting across from me, Jim Ryan, our general manager. Uh, A little nervous here on my side. But, Jim, you have been so dedicated to this cause. It's our second year in a row doing it. How did you get involved and uh, tell us what it is all about to you? Well, I think I'm kind of um, similar to a lot of people in that you you didn't really know the depth of the issue. And a year ago when I was introduced to Jeff and and Christy Sexton of the Phoenix Dream uh, Dream City Foundation, I went down and I toured the facility and I got really educated on it. And I think what took me away the most was I knew it existed like it was out there. And it's so atrocious that I think people think it's not pervasive because it's so extreme and unthinkable. And when I was there and I was getting educated on it and I learned that it's the third largest criminal activity in the world and that Arizona's the main hub for it in the United States, I, I, I was just like, how can this be and how come not enough people know about it? I mean, it was like a punch in the gut. And I, and I said – this is one of the sickest, most atrocious things in the world, and we're, where we live is like the main hub for it, and, and it just blew me away. And so I, you know, I toured the facilities, and, and your team down there did such an amazing job. They do such amazing work. Uh, I, I said, we've got to support this. We've got to find a way to help 
end this in our city. And so that's kind of how we got involved. We started our first campaign last May and raised an amazing amount of, of, of money for the, for the Dream City Foundation. And we said we need to make this an annual thing if we can. And so that's how we came back and did it again. Uh, thank you for that. And I'm glad to be a part of it, a small part of it. You've been a great leader on this, Jim. And Jeff, sex trafficking, human trafficking, um, people know that it's a bad thing, as Jim was saying. I don't think they know the extent of it. And it's almost become a thing that a lot of people may be a little even hesitant to ask what it means. They know they're supposed to be against it. So let me ask you to describe what it is we're talking about. What is the kind of trafficking we're talking about? How do you define what it is we're helping to uh, redress here? Well, there are many forms of human trafficking. There can be labor. and But the, the form that we address um, at the Where Hope Lives program is sex trafficking. And so that's specifically where money is given for sex acts. And so that um, the average age someone begins this work in Arizona is the age of 14. And, but we ha- we've had people um, as young as nine who have gone through this. And we have people in our program who began being trafficked as, as early as the age of four. So this is something that goes on all ages, all demographics. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the way that these people are groomed, a lot of them don't even know that they're being trafficked. We've had people come to our program, and in fact, I would say most people who come to our program don't realize that they were being trafficked. They think that there was this guy who was really nice to them, and that's just how they made money. Um, you know, they they would make money by sleeping with twelve men, twelve strangers for money a day, and that's how they would survive. And so, some of these people, it's it's it will not some of them. They've all it's, it's a brainwashing yeah. um, that takes place. And so, these traffickers are amazing at grooming these individuals to make them feel like they're lucky to get to do this. To, they're lucky to be some of them locked in dog cages with no freedom. Most of them have no say on what they do. Um, in fact, that's one of the biggest things that our survivors have to adjust to is the ability to make their own decisions about how is their hair look? Uh-huh. What are they going to wear that date? They've not been given those luxuries for, for, for quite some time. Let me take a quick commercial break uh, and come back on some of that and some of what we're trying to address here and help out with on the prevention side of this. Because, you know, all of us believe that if we can stop it before it starts, what is it that they used to attribute to Frederick Douglass, the statement that uh, it's easier to make strong uh, boys than fix broken men. And I think that uh, a lot of us can agree that uh, an ounce of prevention is so much better than what we do once we see the results of a failed prevention effort. So we'll talk all about that when we come back. 960thepatriot.com if you want to learn more about this project we're involved in. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Delighted to have Jim Ryan, my general manager, and Jeff May, the executive director of the Dream City Foundation, in studio with me, doing our best. It's said, and there's a problem. You can curse the darkness, or you can, you know, bring a light, light a candle. And uh, we're trying to do the latter part. Jim, tell us about the campaign. What the 960 the Patriot campaign is here on behalf of stopping human trafficking. Yeah, so uh, I got together with Jeff uh, a, a month or so ago, and we said, what do we want to do this year for it? And the, in, your listeners, Seth, have heard me say this many times in some of the commercials that we've been running for this campaign, where one out of every hundred victims is actually saved. And you know, th- think about that for a second. One out of every hundred. So the issue is, and by the way, when they are rescued, 
there's no place that does a better for them than the Phoenix Dream Center. Um, and and so uh, that needs to be said. And the, and the 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 work they're doing is off the charts. Um, but if it's only one out of a hundred, I mean, think about that. We need to stop this before they get in that position because so many don't get rescued. And so we said, what do we do on the prevention side? And that's when Jeff came to me and said, well, actually, the Super Bowl is coming here next year. And the Super Bowl, when that happens, it, it doubles or more the amount of trafficking in those cities. It's a it's a huge, huge increase. And so they've partnered with, and I'll let Jeff, you can elaborate on this, but but they've partnered with the schools here in, in the Valley. And our goal is, with this campaign, to get a hundred assemblies to teach the teachers, the students, and the parents, and the admin about how to spot this and stop it. It's all about online safety. And Jeff, if you will, maybe talk about the online safety and, and the prevention part of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so in, t- in 2020, when we were all in lockdown, um, there was this hope that maybe human trafficking would decrease because people weren't seeing in person. But actually what happened was um, the online activity doubled. It went, actually increased by 96%. So um, because most of what these traffickers use is online. They lure these their victims online. And so they're grooming them through social media, through various forms online. And so what we want to do through this campaign is to educate kids and to educate parents about what to look for. Because, you know, when, you, when you're 13 years old and somebody tells you you look nice, you look pretty, you're flattered by that. But most people would see that and say something's not right about that. And that's where a little bit of education goes so far because these traffickers know what they're looking for. And if somebody doesn't respond to those comments, that's one of the biggest things they can do to prevent it because they realize, okay, this person isn't going to bite. They're not going to take it. And so it's, it sounds so simple and almost too simple, but really just getting the word out about not only kids knowing what to look for, but parents being involved with their kids' online activity. Because as parents, we're, we're you know, the gatekeepers for our kids' safety. So that's a big thrust of this campaign is to monitor the kids' online activity and to know what the signs are to know what to look for. You know, that's a really good point. And I think it's really problematic because even with my kids, you know, I'm not in their social media all the time. Uh, and I think parents are reluctant to push that envelope because they get pushed back and they don't want to be oppressive and feel like, but, but why not? What's in there that they shouldn't be able to see? So that's a really good point. Yeah. And I have, I have three children as well. And, and honestly, you know, that's one area that from day one, when my kids um, got their phones, got their computers, I let them know, Hey, this is my computer. This is my phone that I'm letting you use. And I'm your friend. I want you to have a degree of privacy, but you need to know at any time I may ask to look at your phone. And that in and of itself, accountability can just keep keep things um, a little more on the up and up. And so there are just some a few steps that parents can take to ensure their, their child's safety and, and some things that kids can do as well. Um, even with their friends, we've had a lot of people who have gone through some of this training and when they've stopped potential activity with their friends. So it's not just about yourself or even your kids. It's about just having an awareness of what to look for. And these assemblies really equip the schools to do that, the the students. And part of the assemblies as well is we provide training for the administration, for the teachers, so that they know the signs to look for and they know what to do if they see somebody because there are steps that they need to take uh, for a safe resolution of those kids who are potentially trafficked. 
Jeff, is there a um, is there a typical or a majority or a plurality pattern that you can instruct parents on or at least tell parents on a pattern of vulnerability? Is there a standard or typical or even, as I say, plurality or, or, or often frequency of what you see as leading to a child becoming sex trafficked? You know, there, there really isn't one. I would say if I were going to simplify it, these traffickers don't necessarily look to the homecoming queens. They look for the girls next to the homecoming queens who are their friends, who are maybe not the ones who always get the awards, but they're always there. And they always want to reach out to those people and say, you know, I know that your friend gets all the notoriety, but we really notice you. They always notice those people. So these are very confident people, but they're maybe not the people who are always winning first place. They might be the people who are kind of in the crowd. Mm -hmm. And so they really prey on those vulnerabilities, and that's that's who they reach out to. Go ahead, Jim. I was just going to say that there, there's um, an update on the campaign oh, that I want your listeners to know about. Our goal for this campaign was $50,000, which will fully fund the 100 assemblies in schools or in uh, assemblies in schools valley wide uh, this fall. And uh, we had raised somewhere, I think, in the teens, 15, 18,000. I don't have the exact number in front of me. But we had a generous donor, anonymous donor, come in and, and donate $20,000 as a rule of a match. So they're saying any donations that come in for the next week, we will match up to $20,000. So, you know, I'm asking the listeners to recognize how huge that is. This is our opportunity to get to 50K, you know, because if you guys can step up and donate $500, $1,000, whatever it might be, and this generous donor is going to match all those donations up to 20000 we can hit the 50K. And, and, and so that's the message I really wanted to relay is our, our audience steps up so many times when we do these campaigns and we're selective about the things we do. We don't do a ton of them, but when we do, our audience steps up and they call me personally, especially if it's a business owner, they can call me and they can make a donation through their business and I give them back that donation, the amount in advertising on the radio station. That would apply here too. If a business owner donates 5000 the match would, would make that a $10,000 donation. And so um, I'm just asking them to step up so we can hit our goal of 50K. Good. And 960thepatriot.com, they can go and learn more. Or call uh, me for the business benefactor. you got to call me at the radio station number, 602-955-9600. That's the business office, 602-955-9600. Uh, we have to take a quick commercial break. I'd like to keep you both just one more short segment, if, if if you don't mind. I would love it, Jeff, if when we come back you could give the listening audience maybe three or five takeaways, just to, things to be aware of, things to look out for, things they can do between now and one of these assemblies. Is that okay? Great. I'm Seth Liebson, Jim Ryan, of course, our general manager, and Jeff May, the executive director of the Dream City Foundation, dedicated all with your help in the audience to stopping human trafficking here in Arizona. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. We're talking with Jeff May. He's the executive uh, director of the Dream City Foundation, which is dedicated to uh, stopping uh, human trafficking and Jim Ryan, my general manager, who's launched this campaign with you, the audience. <clears throat> the audience is uh, chipping in to help uh, Jeff, and they're chipping in to help 
help the prevention side of this, to stop it before it happens, stop human trafficking before it happens. We're going into the schools. You're going into the schools to do this. Talk talk to us about the presentation that uh, schools can expect to see. And by the way, if you're a public school, private school, parochial, whatever, charter, you're there for them. Absolutely, yeah. So we we actually have three different assemblies that we're, we're that we present um, because you can't talk to a six year old about human trafficking the same way you can talk to a high school student. Right. So we have an elementary assembly, we have a middle school assembly, and a high school assembly. Um, the elementary assembly primarily focuses on online safety and what they can do for online safety. Um, the high school program talks about that, but it also gets pretty pretty um, to the point about human trafficking. And the middle school's kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, and so these these assemblies, um, they've been produced by an award-winning team. They're fantastic. Um, we're really excited to see these go out and um, just make an impact um, and try to prevent some people from getting into human trafficking this year. Jim? One of the things that we were so excited about with this campaign is we know that it has to start in the schools with the parents' involvement, of course, and, yes, the help of the administrators. But 100 schools is our goal here, 100 schools throughout the Valley. And it's in a, we're offering it to every school district, right? No That's discrimination correct. between any districts or whether, as I say, they're, they're charter private or, um, or, or general public. Jeff, uh, takeaway, a couple takeaways for the audience that's listening right now, parents, uh, two or three things they should be on the lookout for if they're concerned or should be concerned. You know, parents need to be watching, first of all, above all else, they need to be watching their kids' online activity, and they need to be monitoring that. Who are their friends? Do they actually know their friends? Mm. A lot of kids have friends that they say, oh, I don't know. They're a friend of a friend, and that's what these people do. They make friends in these networks so that they feel safe, but if they don't actually know those people, they should not be their friends. Know your kids' friends. Absolutely, and know your kids' friends on social media. Mm -hmm. And I would say the other thing to do is just to be engaged with your kids and to be having conversations because one of the one of the common signs when people get into this life is they start to see the kids withdrawal Mm -hmm. and they start to see a change in behavior an a student all of a sudden becomes a c d or f student Um, someone who's who cares a lot about their grades suddenly doesn't care at all those changes in behaviors parents need to be on that and not just chalk it up to being a teenager or being a kid they need to engage and really dig down deep to try to find the answers to those and make sure that their kids you know that that's that doesn't mean that they're involved in trafficking But um, if, if there's, there's something a... that looks wrong, there's usually something that is wrong. Exactly, and that's exactly right. Jeff May, Phoenix Dream Center, Dream City Foundation, thank you. And Jim Ryan, thank you. For more information, anyone listening and interested in this, 960thepatriot.com will get you right there. Thank you both, gentlemen. Anything? Thank you, Seth. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm Seth Leibson. We will be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.